Most of you probably heard the news on the radio or TV, but one interesting prophetic thing is just underway or just has finished, I guess. Over 1,000 people have just been killed in Nepal in a 7.9 earthquake. It's one of the biggest earthquakes we've had in recent times, as you know, living in California <laughs> all those years. I became kind of an earthquake expert because there are all kinds of articles about them, and we have them several times a year. But any earthquake over six points is serious, can result in death. And, of course, anything over seven points is very, very big, and anything over eight points is massive. And some of the biggest on the world, once in a long time, they have one over nine. But this was 7.9 magnitude, or 7.8. One, one station said 7.9, the other 7.8. So it was a massive earthquake, and over 1,000 people have been counted dead so far, and the toll is still growing, of course. It's a terrible thing. So we can pray that God will be with those people in his mercy. I don't think we have any members out there, but certainly God allows these kinds of things to happen and they're going to happen a lot more as we get toward the time of the end. I'm very grateful to comment again. Mr. Ames just announced, and for the sake of people hearing us on the tape later, we just passed the one-half million mark in our Tomorrow's World circulation, and that is a goal we've had for a long time. So I'm very grateful, grateful for the help of all the editorial staff and all the staff, the mailing people, every part of the work that's helped make that possible that God has got us up now where we have perhaps two-thirds of a million or sometimes a million people reading an issue because sometimes several members of the same family, of course, read the magazine. It's just one magazine for, per household, as we know. So we thank God for the growth that we are having. We're having a lot of growth in many parts of the work, and we're very grateful for that, and I thank God for that. Remember, we started in my living room with 19 people and no television, no radio, and uh, no nothing at first, and now we have over 10,000 people who came to the feast last year, and uh, hopefully we'll get up toward 11,000 this year, we'll see, and now over 500,000, in fact, on my screen just yesterday afternoon, it was 5,200 people already, so it's already climbing uh, uh, beyond 500,000 people, so we are thankful to God for that, but along with this growth, we're having trials, and we're going to have even greater trials by far in the years ahead. You all know that. And brethren, we really need to learn how to face trials. How should you face trials that are certainly coming? And I know that you know that they're coming. We've been having some recent trials in the work with the deaths of a number of people. I'll talk about that in a moment, but certainly we need to realize we've had that before, and we will have that again. It hits me every spring, and because I thought about this topic, it hit me a little bit early today, or this particular year, and my daughter Elizabeth is staying with me now to help me. Her husband is down in the Caribbean conducting Bible studies and special visits there, but almost 39 years ago, on June 16th, 1976, I was sleeping in my bedroom because I'd asked Elizabeth to stay with her mother. I went down part of the time, and I think one or two of the other kids did, but she was the oldest, and she stayed downstairs because Margie McNair Meredith was dying. She'd had cancer for some time, and she lapsed into a swoon. 
She'd had terrible pain for a few days or a few weeks, but it was announced about that to the whole church around the world on the day of Pentecost that month. And right away after the day of Pentecost, the pain left, and she was in what the doctors call a swoon. It was not a complete coma. If you're in a total coma, you don't feel anything. But for several days or a couple of weeks, she could, would groan when the ladies would turn her over to bathe her. They, they, she could hear a little bit sometimes, apparently, and she could feel pain if it were moving, but otherwise there was no pain. She was just kind of knocked out, and the pain was gone. And when I came down, I'd ask Elizabeth, as you remember, to please, if Margie started to move and do anything, to let me know, because they often say that there will be a few moments of clarity when someone's dying, they'll come awake just for a minute or two, and I thought that might be the case. Well, she came up and she said, Mother has her eyes open and she's moved a little bit. She thought she might be waking up. So I came down very quickly about 5.15 or 5.20 a.m., and I was there just a few minutes, and I held her hand and sort of silently prayed, but she died right there while I was holding on to her. And that was one of the most horrifying times of my entire life. I'd had my father die, but he was already nearly 68 years old. I'd had grandparents die. My friend Jimmy Mallett died, but he was not part of the family. And that had been so many years ago in this wrestling accident. But now my own wife died. And when you share your life with some other human being like that all day long and all your hopes and dreams are tied up together, it hits you like a cannonball. And it really tore me up. For weeks, I was fighting it, trying to keep my sanity, trying to keep straight, and I was crying. Sometimes the sun would come in in the morning, and a picture of Margie was on the wall here, and somehow each morning, just after I got up, the sun would hit that picture. I finally had to take that picture away because it sent me into a crying spell. It hurt me so bad that just like God was lighting up that picture right in front of me, and all kinds of things like that come. As some of you know, if you've lost mates, I was coming on the way to work in the college, the 210 Freeway West, out toward the uh, Jet Propulsion Lab is where we lived at that time. As I came on the 210, after just one stop, a young man roared out in his sports car and just about hit me and swerved and around and kind of waved it, honked or did something smart aleck. And I was in an emotional state anyway. And it made me upset. And I started to trace him. I'm going to, so I'm going to chase that guy and I'm going to hit him. And after about five seconds, it didn't take long, of course, and you're driving, then my brain came back on again. And I thought, no, Rod, you have four children to take care of, four children that need your help. And I'm a minister of Jesus Christ, and I had classes to teach and sermons to preach and articles to write, and I was supposed to be an example, and here I was starting to chase this young man in his car. So I slowed down and got control and silently prayed and went on. But I had to fight for months to get over that. Things like that will hit you. I know many of you have experienced some of the things like that. Some of you who are younger perhaps never will, or never have thus far, I should say, but most of us will and sometimes in our life. And you've got to be willing to face things like that. I always remember being with Mr. Herbert Armstrong in the little penthouse. It wasn't some big fancy thing. It was already a real tiny penthouse on top of the old library building. And it was a little skinny thing, just not much wider than two of these desks. And he had this lady's dressing table as his desk in there. 
and then he would come and take a nap on a little bread that he had. But I was up there with him when the phone rang, and here was this man who was with Dick Armstrong on the baptizing tour, and Mr. Armstrong was, I could hear him. I was just literally about, you know, just about one yard in front of this desk. That's where I was from Mr. Armstrong. And he says, what? What? Dick has been hit and his body's crushed. And I could see all these threats going through Mr. Armstrong's mind about his son, his firstborn son who had a great special feeling for. And then Dick died about 10 days later and they brought his body back down from San Luis Obispo and I talked Mr. Armstrong to going into the funeral home, and we together prayed for Dick right on the slab, so to speak. And God did not heal him. But during the funeral, I kept looking up at the mountains of the Mountain View Cemetery, as all you brethren know who used to live out there. Mr. and Mrs. Davis are here and many others. The Mountain View Cemetery is just below Mount Wilson. And you look up there, and I can see Mount Wilson looming up there about 6,000 feet. And so my eyes lifted up toward the hills, and I get asking God to raise Dick right then. Somehow we were new in the faith, and I'd had some remarkable prayers, but God didn't do that. And Dick was dead, and he stayed dead, and we'll see him again later in the resurrection. But you have to understand those things. You have to get through those things. We've had terrible things happen in the work. I remember Mr. Armstrong had to close the whole college back in 1978 because we were beginning to find condoms around and one girl got sent home pregnant and Mr. Armstrong said, that's enough. And they closed Ambassador College. And then after that, Dick or Ted Armstrong was kicked out. Other things got better. And I talked Mr. Armstrong into reviving the college in a different way, a smaller college, more biblically oriented, which we did just two or three months later and later that autumn in 1978. But many young girls were coming out of that assembly crying, and they were really hurt. The whole life was changing. Ambassador College was closed, and we just assumed it would close and stay closed. But lots of things like that have happened in the work. I could tell you story after story like that, as most of you know. But God tests us, and he's going to test you. Every one of you is going to be tested at some point in your life, and you've got to start preparing now. How will you face that test? Every one of us will have shock, will have hurt, but the test will carry on until we die. So you all have to learn that and be able to face the test that God allows. Just in the last few weeks is what got my mind on preaching this. We're not only having this major world events preparing for Christ's return and thousands of people are being tortured and beheaded and, and killed all over the Middle East and Africa. They're kidnapping and raping and torturing hundreds of young women throughout Africa, as you know, just taking them out of their villages. They disappear, never heard from again. Terrible things. But in the church itself, we've just recently had ex experienced the deaths of Mr. Fitzroy Greenman, down in the Caribbean, and as Mr. Ames announced, we had the death of Mr. Peter Vanderbeil. And Mr. Vanderbeil was a friend of mine. I've spent several times with him and knew him pretty well. Very dedicated, very kind man. And so they're both gone. As it was read from the announcement, Mr. Vanderbeil was not a 16-year-old, though. He was 78 years old eight years older than King David when he died, old and full of days. So some of our older ministers die, brethren, and I've said the same thing about me. I'm not exempt. No one had better flip out. 
you keep right on going because if anything happens to me, Mr. Ames will take over. And if anything happens to him, Mr. Gerald Weston will take over. And if something should happen to him, then one or two of the three of the younger men are coming along, very dedicated. We've already talked about who that might be. We haven't decided. We're keeping our eyes on all you young men. But we want to be sure and ask God's guidance. The work will go on. Mr. Armstrong asked the leading evangelist at headquarters to join him when Mrs. Armstrong was dying. I think I've told you this before. But it was quite an experience. We were in her bedroom, and it looked like it was just about time for her to die. And so he asked us to come, and we all prayed over her. Of course, she was 75 and a half years old. So again, she was five years beyond King David. But just before she died, why, she said, look, she says, I'm going. But she said, you young men, keep right on. Keep doing the work. And that's about the last thing I heard her say. Keep on doing the work. And then she died, and, and suddenly her body went limp, and she had this last breath. And Dr. Parrish was there. He was a medical doctor from the in Big Sandy College and in the church, very capable doctor, been elected the president of the medical association in that county. And he, suddenly he leaped on her. He leaped across. He had this kind of a funnel, and he started to, I started to, I was feeling all out of sorts, you know, kind of emotional. I didn't, wasn't thinking very clearly. I thought, he's going to hurt her. And I started to grab him, and then I realized, no, he's trying to get her heart revived. He was not trying to hurt her. You can't hurt a dead person. But he wasn't able to jar the heart again. So she was gone, and we'll see her in the resurrection. And many of our loved ones are gone. And many of you older brethren, along with me, may be gone before the work is over. Let's face it, we're human. God does not promise us eternal life in this flesh. If you find that in the Bible, you'll tell me. But I haven't found it yet in 65 years in God's church. God does not promise us eternal life in this flesh. He talks about eternal life in the resurrection with a wonderful spirit body, but not in the flesh. Recently, we've had, of course, a number of our very dedicated men that we're praying for have very serious illness, and I hope all of you will be praying for them. Mr. Rod King has cancer, very serious form of it, and he needs our prayers. Mr. Harold Way has various things wrong with him. Of course, he's up in his upper 70s, but he's in very serious condition out on the West Coast. We had Mr. George Webb. We heard just the other day, some of you got that announcement at headquarters. Our faithful elder up there had a stroke and then very quickly had a second stroke. So he's in very serious condition, obviously. And then we recently hear about Sheldon Munson, who's the head of our whole youth program, an extremely strong and dedicated and hardworking and now he's had this very serious cancer condition come on him, and I ask you to pray for him. He's only 52 years old. I'll give away his age. <laughs> he's only 52 years old. And the other men we talked about are much older, but he needs to carry on. We need him. We need to pray for these people like this young girl who is suffering, that God intervenes. So we have to face trials. Turn with me, if you would, to First Peter I could read, of course, nearly all of the New Testament. I'm just going to give you certain key things here to think about here today. 
but I hope that you will think about them very deeply because it's going to be part of your life from now on. I don't want to make you feel bad, but from now on you're going to have trials. We're living in the time of the greatest trouble, the greatest catastrophes in human history. Jesus said this coming tribulation will be so awful, there's never been anything like it, nor nor ever shall be. So you better believe there's going to be deaths, suffering, drought, famine, disease epidemics, earthquakes, the heavens will be shaken out of their places. We're going to live through that. And back in 1 Peter, the apostle Peter was writing and talks about those of us who are Christians, his Christians of his day, verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, you who are kept by the power of God through faith. We've got to have faith and trust in God. I've been preaching on that a lot recently. You've got to build that for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. He wasn't always happy. Oh, well, we know God will take care of us. We have nothing to worry about. No, they were grieved even in the apostolic church. These things hurt. They're not always fun. You have been grieved by various trials. Why? Why does God allow it? That the genuineness of your faith. Some of us had a sort of a surface faith, but when trouble comes, we give up very quickly. That the genuineness of your faith being made much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Fire is often used as a symbol of trials, of persecution, and so on. Your faith will be tested by fire. May be found to praise, glory, honor, and glory at the revelation or the revealing of Jesus Christ. So we've got to have that kind of faith so that we will never, 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 never give up. Paraphrasing Sir Winston Churchill, we must build that kind of genuine faith and trust in God. And we've got to really think about that very profoundly. We're going to be in trouble in the days ahead. I want to give you some keys about acting on that. First, always try to see the big picture. When trials come, brethren, think about this. Always try to see the big picture. Now, I could have a whole sermon on just what is the big picture. You know that. But one of the main things to remember, God is still there. The sun's still rising in the morning and the moon at night. The heavens are still going in their courses. And God is still taking care of us. His people are still being changed and helped by his church and his truth and so on. His prophecies are still being underway. The major nations of the world are right now fulfilling his prophecies. You know that. Even today in the, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, they had articles about the growing power of China. And, and, and they're taking over more and more all over Asia. And that's going to weaken us. And we're not able to do much about it. We read about the power of these ISIS guerrillas, this ISIS war uh, people over in the Middle East and how they're taking over vast areas and we're unable to stop them because our leaders are not leaders anymore. They don't know what to do. They give good speeches, some of them, but they do the wrong thing almost every time as far as building our strength and, and doing fighting our battles. They don't know. They're confused individuals. Many articles have come out, hundreds of articles, major editorials in the Wall Street Journal and in the New York Times and Time Magazine, Forbes Magazine, other places are coming out where people are wondering, what has happened to our leaders? 
Well, God has said that he will set weak people over at the time of the end. And he said, your leaders will lead you astray. And that is exactly what's happening. We're going down and down and out. But these prophecies are unfolding. America is going down. And a coming United States of Europe, this threat from Russia and the threat from the Middle East is going to force those nations to get together. And right now they're already talking about getting a full-scale European army, as you know, more than ever. So that will come. What God said would happen will happen. God is alive. We're not talking about little things done off in a corner. We're talking about major nations, hundreds of millions of people. As I've told you, brethren, many times, one man was able to tell about the fall of Berlin and the Eastern European nations before anyone else did. Herbert W. Armstrong, he said it was going to happen, and it did happen. Why? A good understanding have they who keep his commandments. The one who kept God's commandments that led the, the worldwide church of God, it started to say radio church, later became the worldwide church of God. God used him and gave him understanding. And I heard him say it was going to happen, and it did happen. You older brethren know Many articles came out about these things long before they happened. Item after item was fulfilled. It is being fulfilled even now. So God is alive. He's still guiding world events. And lives are still being changed through his work and through his truth. So that's one part of the big picture. Another part of the big picture is found back in Hebrews, if you would. Turn back to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, brethren. And I'm going to be reading here in uh, Hebrews 13 and verse 5. It says, Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. Don't always be trying to get more and more and more and get rich. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You've got to cling onto that promise. If you studied the Bible, if you proved the Bible, and boy, you'd better do that. He has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's part of the big picture. So we may boldly say, not fearfully say, but boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? My loved one can die. My brother in working in my part of the work can die. Other brethren can die. Part of the church could be killed as we've had happen. Part of God's ministry could die as we've had happen, as they happened in the early apostolic church with the beheading of the original apostle James. And certainly even uh, Stephen was the first martyr, having his head crushed by rocks. That wasn't a very nice way to die. Here he goes out as a zealous young man, charging ahead, doing God's work, and they stoned him to death. Was that the end? No, that was the beginning of the apostolic work. And they had to carry on, knowing that God would never leave them nor forsake them. Remember, our promise is not eternal life in the flesh. Our promise is a resurrection from the dead. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I won't go into that, just read it. It says over and over again, we're going to be resurrected. That is our hope. So if God lets some of us die, if God lets some of us be stoned or had our head chopped off or thrown in jail, don't give up. That's not the end. That may even just sounds bad, but not, that might be the beginning of the end, or the end of the beginning, as Churchill said about certain things. Just the beginning of the final persecution. You've got to have courage. You've got to see things from God's point of view. 
and see the big picture and understand that. So God will never turn aside. He will always be with us if we serve him. Let's turn back to chapter 12, Hebrews 12 and verse 1. God tells us through the Apostle Paul, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he meant talking about women receiving their dead raised to life again back in chapter 11, verse 35. Others were tortured. People have been tortured to death. Most of our brethren we're talking about were never tortured to death. They died peacefully in their own bed. My wife Margie died peacefully in bed. My wife Cheryl died peacefully in bed. They were not tortured. They had certain pain, but it was not horrible, like someone being tortured to death. There were people dying of mockings and scourging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. But we have got to know that God is there. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He has not promised us eternal life in this flesh. He has promised that we will go through trials. So let's get used to it. I remember Will was really upset about Mr. O'Gwen's death several years ago because I had hopes that he might later lead the work and he had such a tremendous personality and preaching ability and so on. And after he died, I was down in Florida. Most of you know Mr. Rick Thomas, who was one of our leading members now there and one of our best choir directors. And until Marcus came along, I thought he was the, was the best choir director. Now it's kind of... Hoff, they're both outstanding in their own way. Well, I guess I should say like Mr. Armstrong did about the three colleges. He said they, they mutually excelled each other. But Mr. Thomas has a different style, but a wonderful man, tremendous help and supporter of the church in every way. And I talked to Mr. Thomas about my upset. He said, well, Mr. Meredith, you can't always understand these things. He said, just suck it up. And go do the work. <laughs> he gave me the masculine appeal. You know, go get upset about little stuff or even that. Suck it up. And I, I, I enjoyed that, being an ex-athlete, an ex-ROTC officer and so on. Suck it up and go do the work. And that's what we've got to do. We're going to face much worse things than someone dying without pain in their own bed. You just keep on and you do your part and trust in God to take care of it, which he will. So we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us. Sin can grab us so easily if we let down and run the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. We've constantly got to keep our eyes on Christ in a right way, not a sentimental way, but feed on this book, study it, read about it, think about it, think about what Christ did do, what he would do living in you looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he knew he was going to die. He'd send men screaming with agony on the cross, hanging there five or six days sometimes in horrible agony. He knew, but he also looked beyond that. He had been God. He had been with God the Father out in eternity, out in the depths of the whole universe, the entire cosmos. And he's the one God used to say, let there be light, and there was light. See, boy, it must have taken a lot of faith for Christ to walk on the, on the waters in the Sea of Galilee. Well, it did take more faith than you and I had. I don't think he thought it was some great heroic exploit, because he's the one that made that big lake. It's not a real ocean, it's just a big lake, the Sea of Galilee. He said, well, I made that lake, I'm going to walk on it. <laughs> okay, I'm sure he had that pre-incarnate knowledge came back. Of course he had faith he could walk on the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Genesaret, it is sometimes called. He had that faith. 
he looked beyond the human suffering to the joy of man becoming God, having a glorious spirit body that would never get sick, never get tired, never run down, never die. And he endured the cross, one of the most slow, agonizing deaths that had ever been invented, despising the shame, and was set down at the right hand of the throne of God because he had that deep commitment and he had that faith and he had the vision. He had the mind of God. He saw the big picture. He saw what these men were going to do. He predicted it ahead of time, but he pictured what's going to happen later. The big picture. We become full sons of God. And if we do our part, nothing can stop it. All the powers of heaven, hell, it doesn't make any difference. Nothing can stop it if we do our part. We're going to be full members of the God family with the glorified spirit body and live forever and ever and ever and ever and beyond. Hard to understand, and yet you need to picture it in your mind and know that that is your goal, and you do not give up, you do not quit, because you look for the joy that is ahead. So we must all have that same attitude, the big picture. Let's turn, if you would, to Psalm 33. Turn with me back to Psalm in the Old Testament here, Psalms 33, and I'm going to begin reading, picking up the story here in verse uh, 8. Let all the earth fear the eternal, Psalm 33, verse 8. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe before him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Yes, he created the oceans, and they didn't pass over the bounds. He did these things. He was God. He is God. He will never cease to exist. So he is God. The eternal brings the council of the nations to nothing. They're having a big council right now over in Europe to settle something or other. They always are. What are they going to settle? Nothing. They don't know God. They don't know what's ahead. He brings the council of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples to no effect. And that's what happened. There's a temporary partial effect. The Council of the League of Nations kind of helped a little bit, made people feel better for a while. But sure enough, Hitler got started. Another war came along 25 years later, worse than the other one. After the Second World War, terrible things began to happen. And Russia got the bomb, and we've had the Cold War. And then things are going to get worse than ever before long. They don't solve the problems. They don't know how to deal with... Uh, the Ayatollahs over there in Iran, the Ayatollahs are smiling at how dumb we are. They're not planning to keep all these pieces of paper they signed like toilet paper so far as they're concerned. I mean that. Their attitude has shown that. That's been their consistent pattern. They don't think anything more about that than a piece of toilet paper. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the ever-living one and all the people whom He has chosen. The eternal looks down from heaven. God is watching us here in this room today. Perhaps more people of the true church of God are meeting right here at this particular time. There might be some bigger church somewhere, but we're probably the biggest at this particular moment. He sees all the sons of men. He's watching every one of us. From the place of His habitation, He looks down on all the inhabitants of the earth. He sees where they are. He sees them starting to fight and murder and torture and rape and brutalize people all over Africa, their fellow Africans. He sees these Arabs in the Middle East, descendants of Ishmael. Ishmael said would be a wild ass of a man. 
His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand will be against him. Genesis 16, verse 12, describes exactly these people have been killing each other, fighting and fighting for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're at it again. He sees these things, and he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He has to call out people and work with them. He considers all their works. He knows their actions, not just what they say. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver only by its great strength. Some men think they're very powerful. I'm not saying that President Kennedy did, but he must have felt pretty important. I think I would if I were him, being President of the United States, riding in a big stretch Cadillac limousine and people yelling and screaming and praising him in the streets of Dallas. All of a sudden, some little short guy that very weak physically, apparently, had a gun. Bang! And the President of the United States is dead. It doesn't make any difference how important you are. God can cause your life to be taken or allow that to happen at any time. Behold, the eye of the ever-living one is on those who fear him. If you have that awe of God, and brethren, that's one of the basic things in all of Christianity, to have the fear of God, the awe of God. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God is the beginning of understanding. The fear of God is, is the beginning of wisdom. All three of those things are mentioned. So his eyes are on those and those who hope in his mercy to deliver their souls from death and to keep them alive in famine. We're going to have famine. God will keep us alive if our eyes are on him. Our soul waits for the eternal. He is our help and shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him. Why? Because we have trusted. We don't give up. We don't turn aside. We try to keep going. We keep our eyes on God because we have trusted in his holy name. Everything that name stands for, the great creator, the lawgiver, the one who predicts the future, that's his name because we have trusted. Oh, let your mercy, O eternal, be upon us just as we hope in you. So we've got to build that absolute trust in God. This is all part of the big picture. So brethren, when trials come along, Try with all your heart to keep your eyes on the big picture and be sure you learn to do that. When God looks down from heaven, he sees tens of thousands of people dying all the time. Several hundred have recently died in the last few days or weeks trying to cross the Mediterranean. I'm sorry for them. They're not having a good life there in Africa and they're not God's people. He hasn't called them. And so they're letting them die. And these Europeans are not trying to help as much as perhaps they should. Now they're trying to get together and do something. But they're dying, dying, dying. Over 1,000 people have just died the last few hours of that terrible earthquake over in Nepal. Thousands of people are in pain. Hundreds are being humiliated, beaten up, and tortured, even as we speak right now. But most of our people are not having pain. And they're not dying in torture. They're dying peacefully in their own bed. So even though we have death, though we have trials, let's be thankful for what we do have. Let's see the big picture from God's point of view. Turn to First Thessalonians, if you would, at this point, And uh, something that we read a lot, but I want to do it. It fits here, and I think I should read it. First Thessalonians and chapter 4. We have death in the church of God. We don't all live forever in this flesh. First Thessalonians chapter 4 
and right even the early apostolic times when the apostle Paul was still alive, people in the church were dying. God didn't let them all live to be 80 or 90 or 200 years old. He said in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. They have. Some had recently died. That's very obvious when you read this carefully. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Others get all shaky and they can't. How could God allow this? Oh, I'm going to come apart. Well, I almost came apart when my wife died back in 1976. It was a little bit easier with my second wife, not that I loved her less. She was absolutely beautiful and wonderful and helpful to me, and I appreciate her, but I'd been through it once. I'd been through it once, and I was hopefully spiritually stronger about 37 years later. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those who... God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. It's called a sleep. This death is temporary. It's temporary. It does not last forever if you give your life to God, if you die in Jesus, not apart from Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, we're in the church, we're carrying on God's work until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Actually, those who are asleep get to come up first. I don't know if it's a few minutes early or a few hours early. It doesn't make any difference, but they have the honor of coming up a little bit quicker. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. It's going to be an, a, a, really a spectacular time. There will be a great shout and blowing, a blowing of a trumpet, and the earth will hear it. The earth will shake. Every mountain and every island will shake at that time. And the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's a promise. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus shall we always be with the Lord. And where will the Lord be? All the rest of the Bible shows he'll be on this earth. But they meet him in the clouds as he's coming down. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And we should. We're all going to be resurrected. At the last trumpet, it's going to be a glorious occasion. I used to say that more of God's people are going to rise to the dead at Mountain View Cemetery in Pasadena than anywhere else, perhaps. But we don't know that. Mr. Ames then later said he thought Noah's more old people used to go to the old folks' retirement place there in Big Sandy. So we may have more people in the, in the Gladewater Cemetery come up. We don't know. It doesn't make any difference. But there's going to be a traffic jam up there in Altadena when Margie comes up. And there's going to be a traffic jam hopefully here at Forest Lawn Cemetery right here when my wife Cheryl comes up and Mrs. Bonjour and many other fine people that are buried right there in that cemetery. And a big traffic jam over in the Gladewater area when people come up from that cemetery. And people in the Middle East may have had some of them died and been buried in the same cemetery too. It'd be interesting to see a traffic jam going on in certain places of the earth and God's saints rise together. Well, how are you? Well, you're here too. I wasn't sure you'd be here, they'll say. You know, you look at a certain person, why are you here? And no, they'll know why they're here at that time. But that's going to be very inspiring. So have your mind on the mind of Christ. And that's what he said. The second big key, besides seeing the big picture to help you face these trials, big key number two Focus on God and on faith and get your mind off yourself. Focus on God and get your mind off yourself. 
That's part of the number two here, and you've got to learn to do that. I should have done that more after Margie's death, but I'd never had that hit me. So at first it was just all over me. I'm suffering, and my wife is dead. What's going to go on? Who's going to take care of Elizabeth and Mike and Jim and little Rebecca? And how am I going to carry on? What's going to happen? Well, God helped us work all that out, but he did. And I'm still here, and they're still here, and Elizabeth's right here today with me, helping me still, and she helped me back then when she was just about 17, 18 years old, whatever it was. Not trying to give away her age. <laughs> Not supposed to tell how old women are for some reason. I think that's a vain superstition. <laughs> anyway, that's this modern custom we have. But get your mind off yourself. That's what we've all got to do. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 1 to get the mind of God on this. Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 18. The Apostle Paul tells us, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. He talked about some people preaching Christ sincerely, others trying to cause trouble for him. But he was glad that Christ was preached. Back then, Christ was not known that much, and he was glad that however it's preached, it's being preached. And he was glad. Excuse me. I'm glad they have the tea up here. Thank you for ever putting it here with a little bit of honey for my throat. I'm glad that Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, no, we're not to be fearful. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, I should say, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of a sound mind. Sour and of hope and of a sound mind. We're to have hope, we're to have power. God has given us the spirit of power with boldness. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And brethren, that ought to be our attitude. Not, oh, I'm hurting and I'm having a trial. No, I'm Christ's bond slave. When you went down into that watery grave of baptism, and most of you older people did, and young people need to think about it ahead of time, what is baptism? It's not just joining a club. I had to learn to tell the ambassador kids that because someone would just get baptized to date Joanne or to date George or whatever their name was or things like that. I said, no, we don't have any club. You can't join the club by getting dunked in the water. You are making a covenant with your Creator. That's what I had to learn to tell them. And I hope all of you will think about that. And those of you who are already baptized, did you actually do that? If you didn't do that, go back and think about it and do it at some point. The end is near. You better get right with God. I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm trying to be realistic. Did you make a covenant with your Creator? Did you say, God, my life is not my life anymore? My life is your life. I'm giving my life to you. It's your life, not my life. And that's the attitude we're to have, and God tells us that over and over again. So he says, So now, so Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. It doesn't make any difference. It's his life. If he wants to take it, that's his life, not my life. For to me, to live is Christ. And I need to think that. To live is Christ. 
That if Christ wants to use me a few more years, then he can do that. He will do that. And I've got to be prepared as I get older and start stumbling around and forgetting things and doing the wrong thing as I get older and fill things and act, act awkward. Well, if it's time to go to sleep, okay. If that's God's will, that's what's best and not worry about it. To me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And boy, it would be easier sometimes with all the problems coming along. Just well, I'll just let them lay me down over next to my wife Cheryl and Mountain View Cemetery or or uh, Forest Lawn, it's called over here. And, uh, and I'll be at peace. I won't worry about. It. Let the other guys fight it out. Let Mr. Ames carry on. Let it be his problem for a while, and then he can give it to Mr. Ames. If Mr. Weston, if time goes on, say let Gerald fight it for a while. He's younger. You have, God is real, you should have that attitude. To die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two. He really was. He was sincere. God wasn't allowing him to lie. He literally wanted to do whatever was God's will. He would, he would rather go to sleep at some time. So I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better if he had gone to sleep, knowing the next split second he'd be in glory and power and immortality, that was far better. But if he had to stay here in the flesh, he was still going to suffer. He was still going to have men cuss him out for making mistakes or what they thought were mistakes. Maybe it weren't real mistakes. Get on his case. Go through trials and tests and beatings. He had to walk around with a ball and chain between him. Every time he went to the bathroom, he was going clunk, clunk, clunk. His ankles were sore, probably hurting. He felt embarrassed. He felt hurt. He couldn't live a normal life. He could not live a normal life in that situation. But he had to have faith in God. So he said he was willing to do that if need be. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. If it was more needful, that God would keep him alive. Otherwise, he wouldn't. He said earlier, by the way, in verse 13, he said, The whole palace guard and knows about this, that my chains are in Christ. And verse 16, he says, they were preaching some sincerely and some night, not, uh, not sincerely, supposed that affliction to my chains. So he was thinking about his chains. He had a ball and chains fastened between his legs that made his life very, very uncomfortable. And it was not a, a, good, a, good, a good feeling, obviously. I thought it was here at the end again. Maybe not. And anyway, he repeats it two or three times about the chain. Remember my chain, he said at the end of a couple of his letters. He went through a lot. But he said, my life is Christ's life. I want to magnify God in my body, whether by life or by death. If our mind thinks that way, we won't go around feeling sorry for self. If we get a terrible headache that won't go away, or our toothache won't go away for days or weeks, or we lose a mate, or we have a tragedy and our house burns down, or we have an earthquake and our house shakes down, or whatever it is, it doesn't make any difference. We will know that our life is God's life. It's not for us to worry about it. God will take care of us. He always have and He always will. So... Our life is God's life, and we want to really feel that way about it. And then the third big key to remember about facing trials is be aware of Satan. Satan may be involved, 
we don't to blame everyone. You know, uh, uh, Bill Cosby said in his comedy show, uh, the, the devil, he didn't say devil, but D-E-B-I-L, the devil did it, he'd say for fun. Well, the devil didn't always do it. God allows other things. It's not always the devil, but it could be. And we should be aware of that and do our part where that doesn't happen. And I've given so whole sermons on that. But realize back in 2 Corinthians, if you turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the apostle Paul in his first epistle told her to put this man out, this fornicator who's even having incest with his stepmother. Put him out. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And they did that. And then in the second letter, he says, coming, bring him back. He's apparently really repentant. He's crying. He's upset. He's hurting. He meant about to have a, na- a nervous breakdown or something. He said in verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10, Now whom you forgive anything, I forgive you. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Satan has devices. Satan has clever ways he tries to get at us. He knows our weaknesses. If your weakness, some of you young men, is sex, he'll try to put things in front of you and tempt you. If your weakness is liquor, he will try to get you with other people who are drinking too much liquor. He will try to get you around people into marijuana or strong drugs if that's your weakness. Whatever it is, he knows your weakness and he will come after you and he will try to get you. He's very intelligent. He's a powerful spirit being. So we've got to be aware of Satan. And Satan will often be used by God and allowed by God at least to bring these trials on us. And we must fight him. It's a battle. The battle that goes on the rest of our lives. Let's turn now, if you would, at this point to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to begin reading here, as you might know, in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 10, 6 and verse 10. Paul wrote here, Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, not your might, God's might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles. Yes, Satan has little tricks. He has wiles, clever ways of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not just fighting other human beings with our problems often. We're fighting spirit beings who come to us through human beings or through unusual situations that Satan guides, we're fighting spirit beings against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts in the high places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You need the whole armor of God to do it, brethren. You can't do it of your own, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And we're entering an evil day. Please understand this. I may not be here to help you during that time, but you're going to have the most horrible, awful things come on this world. And those of us who are older, if some of us go to sleep, why, we're sorry we'll go to sleep, but we're going to escape a horrible time. You can't, you know, even reading the news now, it hurts me. America's going down. This is going down. That's going down. Something else is going down. How much worse is it going to be in 5 or 10 or 15 years? I don't think it'll go on 15 years, but it might before the tribulation begins. We're going to see horrible things out putting down God's people and putting down everything we believe. And we can't go out of our baseball bat and like to get my cane and, you know, get after them. I can't do that. 
this whole world is going crazy. You see that. It's already starting to happen all through the Middle East. People being humiliated and raped and beaten and tortured. It's going to come over here. And you're not going to like it. It won't be fun stuff. You've got to know there is a God in heaven. You've got to really know and know that you know that this book is inspired revelation. And believe in it. Believe in it. And build that faith and trust in God or you won't make it. So put on the whole armor of God. Stand therefore having girt your waist with truth. What is truth? This book, John seventeen seventeen. Thy word is truth, Jesus said. Fill your body, your mind, your personality, your whole being with the Word of God as best you can. Having on the breastplate of righteousness that protects your heart. Righteousness, such as keeping God's commandments. And having shod your feet, what keeps you busy? What do you do? The preparation of the gospel of peace. Be busy in God's work. Get busy helping others. That helps you get your mind off yourself. Above all, Taking the shield of faith. What do you put out in front of you so the terrible attitudes don't get right at you? You put this shield out in front of you to protect you. It's the shield of faith. Absolute trust in God. The shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation to protect your mind, your brain. A helmet and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. The only offensive weapon you have is the Word of God. You've got to learn how to wield that sword, to thrust, to parry, to hack, to use the Word of God to withstand evil, to withstand the devil, to withstand his false ministers, to understand his confused people who will try to hurt us or mislead us and confuse us. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that's your armor, and you're going to have to put on that armor, praying always. And again, don't just pray some brethren, pray all the time. Walk with God all day long with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to in this end, that with all perseverance and spirit supplication for the saints. And he said, and for me, brethren, pray for the ministry. We need it. Some of our older ministers are dying. Pray for the ministry that utterance may be given, that we may open our mouths boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which, as Paul said, I'm an ambassador in chains. Again, he talked about being in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So we've got to put on that spiritual armor or in a spiritual war or to fight the war. We are Christian soldiers. We sing the song, Onward, Christian Soldiers. And we must understand what that means. We are soldiers. We are in a battle. And we've got to be sure we win that battle and that we never, never give up, never turn aside. So I hope you're aware of that and think about it in that way. Uh, now, the fourth key to facing trials that I want to give you is never give up, never give up or turn aside, never give up or never get bitter. Turn to chapter uh, Hebrews, I mean, chapter 12, if you would. Hebrews chapter 12 again. And I'm going to begin reading this time in verse 14. He said in verse 14, Hebrews 12, verse 14, as Paul closed this book, Pursue peace with all men and holiness. Try to be like God in every way you can. 
without which no one will see the Lord. You can't see God unless you become like God is, looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. As I've said, I've known a few people like that, very few, but they became so bitter that we tried to reason with them, and they were totally unreasonable. They would not accept help, encouragement, anything. They just got bitter, bitter, bitter. And they may never be back again in God's kingdom or anything else. A root of bitterness where you're just mad against the church, you're mad against God, you're mad against everything. Don't let that happen. Don't think it can happen. I could name names, but I think it did happen to a few people. I don't think there are people any of you would know by name, though I'm not talking about any leading person. Any root of bitterness must not spring up, troubling, cause trouble to many, and many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. Oh, I don't care what God says, so what about your old God? That was Esau's attitude. He gave up his blessing and was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he saw it diligently with tears. Later it hit him how dumb he was in giving up his birthright. For you have not come to the mountain that might be touched like Mount Sinai when God appeared and gave the Ten Commandments that burned with fire. You're not coming to that kind of power at this time, Paul said, and to blackness and darkness and tempest and at the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so those that heard it begged that the word would not be spoken to them anymore. A booming voice like rolling thunder came boom, boom, boom across the sky and shook them, shook their body, shook their ears, and, sh and scared the daylights out of them. So that even Moses said, I'm terribly afraid. Terrifying. I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you've come to Mount Zion. That's where we've come, brethren. And God has brought you somehow to his church. I don't know why he brought me to, 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 to this church. I had my dear friend Jimmy Mallett. Someone gave me a clipping that they'd found and of his death in the Joplin Globe that had been saved all those years. And I guess Elizabeth got it and gave me a nice copy. But anyway, he's dead and I'm not. Why did God call me? I'm no better than Jimmy. It's just God did it. And we're here. We're coming to the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn who are registered in heaven. Our names are written in heaven to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Get that. We're coming to the spirits of just men, not just men, of course, we're talking generically, human beings, the spirits of just men made perfect. God works with us, works with us. Our faith is tried. Our attitude is tried. He knocks off the rough edges. He polishes it like you would be a gorgeous diamond. And pretty soon he has a stone that will last forever in his kingdom and his family will never turn aside. We're called to join the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and of the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? So we've got to understand this trial that we're going through. Think of it from God's point of view, whatever the trial is. But know that God is there. He's all-powerful. And we're headed for a magnificent glory. God's voice then shook the earth. 
But now his promise saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth but also heaven. Now this, yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as the things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, Paul tells us, since we are receiving a kingdom, our kingdom, brethren, will never be shaken. The United States is going down. I'm sorry. Britain is going down. I'm sorry. I love the British people. I love our nation. But we're going down and out. We've turned our backs on God. We despise his commandments. We despise his statutes. We're going to receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which to serve God according to reverence, deep respect, and godly fear, and awe, an absolute sense of awe and profound reverence for that great creator who gives us life and breath. In him we live and move and have our being. For our God is a consuming fire. So when we understand how great that God is and what he says about these things, we had better be sure that we don't let any trial overthrow us. We've got to be sure that we stay where God is working. As I've said before, there are going to be many different choices put before you. But if you see some mistake being made in this church, remember, try to ferret out in your mind. Pray, study, meditate, be honest. Where is God's truth being most fully preached today? Where is God's work being done more fully today by any group on earth? Where is the government of God which is the kingdom of God. Kingdom means government. Where is the government of God, the correct government being taught and practiced, not perfectly, but more fully than any place else on earth today? I think most of you know or you wouldn't be here. But don't let people shake you. Understand it. See the big picture and never get bitter at us. Never get bitter at God. Never get bitter at God's truth. Never give up. Never quit. Your reward is awesome. All right, let's remember then, never give up. One facet of this that can help you as much as anything else, and I've been preaching about it a lot, back in John chapter 6. Turn back to the Gospel of John chapter 6. I want to go here again, so you'll be hearing about this a lot for me. I don't want to wear you out, but I'd rather wear you out and have you get it than not get it. Jesus said, John chapter 6, verse 53, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, literally feed on Christ to where he becomes part of your body, your mind, your personality, your character, everything about you, you feed on Christ. Otherwise, you have no life in you. You will die and you will not be resurrected. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Is he already immortal? No. But he has the presence of eternal life through the Holy Spirit if he does that. Because he went on to say, And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Christ will live in you. He will abide in you. He will give you strength. Remember back in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. One of the favorite voice, verses of all of us, I'm sure, Ephesians 4, verse 13. I can do all through Christ who strengthens me. And he will. He's able. He's total power. He is God. So you eat and drink of Christ. 
He says in verse 56, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me. You literally feed on Christ. How do you feed on Christ? You feed on Christ by drinking into this book, by studying it, meditating on it, turning it over and over in your mind, picturing how Christ was here and how he taught that way, picturing how Abraham rode off with his army of over 200 men to rescue his nephew Lot, picturing how Jacob had to wrestle with Christ in a sense. These awesome things that God shows in the Bible. He was wrestling for his survival, wrestling with Christ. And picture those things. Did men of God have terrible trials back then and everything didn't turn out perfectly? Well, it shows how Jacob's wife, Rachel, died on the way to uh, this Bethlehem. And he had to bury her under the tamarisk tree or something. She did die at a convenient time. He buried her. Life goes on. The sun rose the next day. Jacob went on and did God's work for him at that time. The sun still rises. You carry on. You do God's work. You put your faith and trust in God, and you never, never, ever turn aside. So you want to have that attitude. You feed on Christ. In verse 63, Christ said, It is the Spirit who gives life. It's not flesh. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, these words in this book, brethren, they're living things. These words are spirit and they are life. Many of you have never done this, but I've had to go through this two or three times in my life because of terrible circumstances that I've told you about before, where I was having be, being tested. Mr. Armstrong went through it a number of times too and tells about it, especially when his first being called. He studied the Bible day and night. He studied it till after midnight often and would have a hard time getting up the next day. He studied it in the Portland Library till the library closed. He came home and studied it some more. I asked Mrs. Armstrong and Dick and Ted and Beverly and, and Dorothy, his daughters, and, and I'm always the man from Missouri checking up. I said, did your father ever do this kind of thing? I asked it in a general way, and I didn't say that he said he did it. Did he? I didn't do it that way. I said, did it kind of a, yes, they said he did. He was just consumed, one of them said. My dad was consumed with it, consumed with the Bible. He fed on Christ. Seek the eternal while he may found. Call on him while he is near. It tells us back in Isaiah 55. At some point in your life, and there may be several, you will be driven to your knees, and you will need at that point not to come apart. You will have to get on your knees and seek God. Seek God and profoundly study and meditate and pray and cry out to God again and again, God, I'm here, you're there, show me, help me understand, help me to be sure, please give me the strength and help me to be sure what I'm doing, Father, make it clear, and he will. I remember among many times when the whole worldwide church was coming apart, and I felt I had to leave, some wanted me to leave two or three years ahead, I did not do that. And one man who went off and started his own church, his son called me and asked me if I would like to join them. I said, no, I don't think this is good. I still wouldn't do that. Then when I had just about a year before, some others broke off and tried to get me to go up do something with them. And I'd always been the Bible teacher, the freshman Bible teacher, taught more Bible classes than anyone else in college. I thought, I, I can't just leave until I'm absolutely sure. 
Even when I left, I had four or five of my students, including one of my former secretaries whom I left, was a very nice person. And they wrote me nice letters. She did and said, well, Mr. Meredith, you've always told us to be loyal, and here you are off here in some other church. What's wrong with you? Well, later, a couple of years later, she joined another church too. <laughs> she never did write me a letter of apology, but uh, I think Mr. Nathan knows whom I'm talking about. But at any rate, uh, she had to leave too. It got so bad. More people saw it. But I was praying and fasting and fasting and praying and asking God, please make it clear. And finally, through a series of circumstances, not just one thing, a series, it became very clear. You've got to get out of here. <laughs> You've got to get out of here. Someone has got to revive the work of God, and you're supposed to do it. And I did do it. And you're here. But I had to cry out to God. And at some point in your life, you're going to have to cry out to God again and again and again. Your husband, your wife, some unusual person close to you has just died or you've lost your job, perhaps your career, been kicked clear out of the church, the work, everything, and you want back, you may have to pray and fast and seek God in a way you've never done before. Don't be afraid to do that. Whatever you do, do it with your might. Go all out in seeking the God who gives you life and breath. God wants us to do that. So these words are spirit and they are life. And so he who feeds on me, Jesus said, will live you will live because of him, and you will live forever. So we want to understand, brethren, and I hope that all of you will understand that and carry on. Now turn with me to Second Timothy, if you would. Second Timothy, and I'm going to read back here, and uh, could find my marks here. Second Timothy, chapter four. And here, of course, is the final, very final chapter of the final book that Paul wrote while he was on this earth. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, to this young evangelist, and certainly was written for all of us, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. He's going to appear when many of you are still alive and his kingdom. Preach the word. We've got to get out that message. People won't always like it. So what? We've got to do it anyway. We've got to do it with wisdom. We don't have to come out with the strongest thing to the weakest people or on every station. So we get cast off all the stations. But we can't give in and quit preaching it. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convict, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Rebuke. Correct people. Wake them up. And I hope all of you will wake up. Most of us are not as close to God as we should be. You know that. We have many Laodiceans sitting right here. Wake up if you're a Laodicean. Get with it. God is beginning to intervene in human affairs now more than ever. We don't have too much longer to make up our minds. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, you want to see or hear the soft and smooth things. They will heap to themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned to fables. All these rotten fairy tales about little Lord Jesus away in a manger, silent night, mother's holy night, go Easter egg hunting, all the crazy stuff the world has gotten into, and be turned aside to fables. But be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Yes, go through trials. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul wrote, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He knew this time... 
he wasn't able to have visitors. He wasn't able to have the help he used to have. He wasn't able to get out and have his own hired house. He was in prison with a ball and chain. The time of my departure is at hand. God had apparently revealed to him in a vision or a dream. This was it. This was it this time. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Have you done that? I hope that you have. I hope that you have. I hope that I have. We've all got to be able to meet our maker and know what it means. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day when Christ comes back as King of kings, and not only on me, but also on all who have loved his appearing. So let's be sure we do our part, that we go all out with all of our being. And brethren, I hope all of you will try to remember these three basic things that I gave you. Be sure you always try to see the big picture. When a trial comes, don't just get your mind on that little think about the people all over the world and what's happening. So many people are suffering much worse. God's overall plan and purpose. The prophecies are still happening. He's still there. Secondly, focus on God and faith and get your mind off yourself and not sit around feeling sorry for yourself. Thirdly, be aware of Satan and his devices. Don't ever let him get you sidetracked. Don't ever let Satan get you in a spirit of bitterness. And fourth, never, never, ever give up. Feed on God. Feed on Christ. Have the mind of God in all these things. And as Paul said, I have kept the faith. I have fought the fight. You fight the fight. We're in a spiritual war. We must win. Our whole eternal life depends upon it. And the kind of reward that will, will be given when the whole heavens open up and tremendous spirit trumpets begin to sound and people are going to be raised up around us, perhaps, and we will wish we were raised up if we understood. We need to be ready for that day. It's going to be awesome. And our reward is full sons of God forever. Can't be fully described how magnificent it's going to be. We have a magnificent reward. Fight the fight. Never give up. Never let trials overcome you. Make yourself fully ready for the kingdom of God.